0: This podcast was produced by FM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young, shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality, and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun.
1: Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community
2: or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz.
1: Hello, friends. We're having Demetris, Professor. Ralph Sims from Massey University, who's been a coordinating lead author of the IPCC or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Assessment Report 2002 on Energy and Supply and a Special Report on Renewable Energy. And he's an international consultant and contributor for uh, the IPCC
2: Well, it's good to have you on, Ralph.
1: Yeah, Marina Marvin, it's good to be here because it's
2: very topical, this uh, climate change uh, topic at the moment with the Glasgow COP Conference of Parties going on. So, yeah, good to talk.
1: How and why did you get involved in the IPCC program in your government panel on climate change?
2: Oh, well, um, it was an interesting series of events, I suppose, because it's intergovernmental. Then governments nominate authors for the various reports. And I was nominated, in fact, for the third assessment report, which uh, we started in 1997. So that was my first one. And then I led the chapter, as you just said, on the fourth assessment report in uh, 2007, I think it was, on energy supply. We got the Nobel Peace Prize for that, shared it with Al Gore. Oh, I
1: didn't um, realize that. Oh, that's
2: great. Yeah. So I've got one two thousandth of a half of the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> and then, um, I led the chapter on renewable energy integration in a special report. The assessment reports are every seven years, and so um, uh, this one came out in 2011. And then I led the transport chapter for the fifth assessment report, which was released in 2014. And I'm now on my fifth report, which is the sixth assessment report. And I'm what's called review editor for the transport chapter. So um, it's been an interesting ride. I mean, what we said in the original report was 30 years ago hasn't changed very much. That The climate is changing. and We need to do something about it. And then, of course, we got more detailed in the scenarios and the solutions. There's actually three. Um, IPCC reports in their assessment reports, one's on the physical science and that was just released a few weeks ago, which uh, hit headlines around the world saying we do have a problem. Um, The second one is on adaptation, which is from working group two and I'm involved with working group three on mitigation, how we can avoid putting uh, more greenhouse gases into the air and, uh, and, and reduce the concentrations. Of carbon dioxide and the other greenhouse gases that are already up there.
1: But it's interesting, that you know, you've say we've got a problem in this, but we've known we've got a real problem for a long time, haven't we?
2: We we do. I mean, it was um, oh, I don't know over a hundred years ago when a scientist first figured out that the carbon dioxide going up there from burning coal in those days will warm up the planet. And um, and then, of course, it was only from the 1970s onwards where it became uh, a more serious problem that we were becoming aware of and the science had strengthened. So we've known about it for a long time. The sad thing is, globally and in New Zealand, we haven't found how to reduce our emissions yet. We know what to do and we've got many examples of good, good policies and good changes, but overall the total emissions per year uh, have increased annually. And, in fact, um, have just gone for the energy sector, which is the main CO2 emissions. The International Energy Agency, where I was based in Paris for four years on a secondment with them, um, have just uh, announced that, again, in spite of COVID, they've grown again this last 12 months back to where they were. So um, we haven't uh, managed to turn bend the curve and, reduce
1: them down. as The scientists who worked for oil companies were the first ones that had practical research material that actually had the evidence, weren't they? A long time ago, back in the, maybe in the 70s. That's
2: that's right. Um, um, mobile is the one that gets criticized most, but uh, interestingly, some um, scientists on the IPCC, one represented mobile in the um, 80s, and um, there's another guy, Arthur Lee, now from Chevron. And um, so, and they're sort of genuine at heart. I don't think they're trying to disrupt the process. Well, I'm sure they're not. But uh, they're putting forward the uh, oil industry side of things, but trying to get a balance into it. But certainly there was concern, a bit like the tobacco industry. They were trying to block the science and cover up the fact that we've got a problem because, obviously, it was going to impact on their business.
1: Haven't we... Haven't we had a problem with this idea of balance, that each side is half right and we have to present the other side fully when we've known for uh, 30 years that that's not actually true, that uh, the climate change is a massive problem and that the oil and coal industries are the main Uh, leaders in creating carbon, and they shouldn't necessarily have a right to to have half the say to every time you put something in a paper or put a research project out, or have something on the media or in the UN, that they should be represented and have their view taken as seriously as the scientists.
2: Yeah, well, that's that's, uh, really what the IPCC is all about the the whole concept of the United Nations set up the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change after the Rio de Janeiro conference uh, back 30 years ago, and the UNFCCC established the IPCC, and we've got some pretty strong rules there because our job is to assess the science and not to be policy prescriptive. And when we assess the science, we look at all the scientific papers that have been produced in the last few years, and they can debate an issue. Biofuels springs to mind. Some people think biof- liquid and gaseous biofuels for transport. Uh, some biofuels are good biofuels, and some biofuels are bad biofuels, if you're going to cut down forests to grow palm oil, for example. And so... The whole IPCC process is to bring the scientific knowledge together, and that could represent the oil industry uh, and their publications as well. We base it on peer-reviewed literature, so scientific publications, but we also look at the grey literature. For example, BP, the oil company, British Petroleum, as it was uh, originally called, and then they changed the name to Beyond Petroleum some years ago, and then they invested in a load of solar energy because they were diversifying, and that sort of slowed down a bit since. But they put out a very good annual report on assessing the energy uh, use, etc. So um, to get a balance is a key part. So any scientific, any IPCC report has hopefully got the balanced balance science. and if There is a debate.
1: We put forward both sizes of debate. Do you ever feel frustrated that <coughs> the scientists haven't put forward a stronger prescriptions at times? It,
2: it's um, it <laughs> is it is a I'm challenge. That, personally,
1: I'm not saying.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. 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 Sure. <laughs> um, yes. Certainly. Um, uh, it, You know, our messages from the IPCC and and other science organisations have been around a long time, and they've only really just been picked up in the last five years with any degree of momentum, and and so it is um, uh, frustrating. But on the other hand, scientists are renowned for not communicating science very well, and so therefore, in the past, IPCC and other scientific journals, etc., have uh, presented all this scientific jargon and modelling and whatever, but not turned it into press releases and everyday language. That's now changed. It's icon- <coughs> a pretty strong um, uh, communications spoke there as well. So trying to get the message across in a, uh, a, a, a easy to understand way, which um, everybody can realise the seriousness of the problems. So it is a bit frustrating that um, even after all this time, the emissions are still rising and that's my uh, key concern. I've got grandchildren and what's the future going to be like for them? And so I suppose every grandparent thinks that maybe, but um, on this particular topic, um, the observations, uh, extreme weather events, ice melting, sea level rise can all be measured and they're actually happening quicker than the um, scenario modelling projected. And so that's a uh, a sign that we really do have a sense of urgent need a sense of urgency.
1: Who are the main and most important participants in COP26 conference in Glasgow?
2: Oh, yeah. it's a complex... I've been to a few COPs. I was in Paris, for example, and uh, Durban, Marrakesh, uh, Copenhagen, um, these COPs, Conference of Parties, are every year and they're hosted by a different country. And this year, of course, it's the UK. So Prime Minister Boris Johnson there and Alec Sharma is a British uh, minister who's the chair or the president of the conference. So within the inner um, workings of the conference are the international negotiators from maybe 190 countries. And they've all got a place at the table. And they've all got the opportunity to speak and contribute to the debate and to write the uh, output from this conference, which has obviously taken years of deliberations. And now we're trying to, or they are trying to finalize it in the next uh, few days, uh, as to make some steps forward. So they're the key people who are there, but they're sort of locked into the inner sanctuary. what comes out from there, a lot of it's not made public, there's a load of side meetings going on and um, different countries would be negotiation, negotiating different topics together, which the host country pulls together and chairs and tries to get a consensus. Uh, so that's um, going to end by the end of this week, and quite how far we get a consensus is, is up for a question at the moment, there's um, sort of uncertainties there. Um, Russia and China have been criticised for not sending their um, presidents along but uh, Jacinda Ardern isn't there either and so it is it is a sort of high-level meeting Barack Obama just popped in yesterday and interestingly he came along to the Paris meeting and it was struggling with about three days to go so he and his uh, off um found a room somewhere and invited the key players into this room and had a I know, three or four hour meeting and came up with a solution of, of how the consensus would go forward in order, in order that the Paris Climate Agreement uh, came into force. And um, if he hadn't have been there, that wouldn't have happened, maybe. Uh, this time, the leaders of the countries came in the first few days rather than the last few days, which is usual. And so why they've done it that way, I'm not sure, because the uh, anticipation is that um, the key negotiations are by dialogue over a a glass of wine on the last night. and, um, And there's a lot of pressure. Sometimes these meetings go right the way through the night. I've certainly been in one or two of those as well. So those are the key people who are there. But as well as that... Um, And the side meetings, there's all the sorts of uh, United Nations Environment Programme, the Global Environment Facility, and the GEF, which I was involved with for a few years, uh, International Energy Agency, UNDP, etc., are all holding various meetings on various topics. And there's also some major side meetings going on with the negotiators outside of the main conference room. Uh, such as voluntary carbon markets, which is a key part, which New Zealand, in its latest um, uh, nationally determined contribution, it was announced just a couple of weeks ago, uh, 50% reduction by 2030, which isn't really 50%, but that's another story, Um, two-thirds of our emissions, it's now thought we might have to buy from other countries if they can reduce their emissions further. Well, I think that's – isn't that a problem? This it's mission. a huge problem. So this voluntary carbon markets group are battling away, trying to um, get a consensus on that, and, um, and and they might not do it by the end of this.
1: I mean, the carbon market really hasn't worked very well, has
2: it? No, that's right. I mean, we were guilty. We bought hot air gases from Ukraine maybe 10 or 12 years ago to offset our emissions and we bought them cheaply and and they were worthless because Ukraine had an economy that had collapsed a bit and therefore there was less industrial activity than there would have been. So they were selling, <laughs> selling the loss of the economy, the loss of greenhouse gas emissions uh, on the carbon market. Other carbon markets have been double counted. So a country reduces its emissions, but then sells carbon credits to another country, and that country counts the same emissions, which is a total nonsense. So,
1: Isn't isn't it misleading the whole carbon market thing, often?
2: I I think it's... I mean, basically, there's three ways to reduce emissions in New Zealand. We can either plant more forests and have carbon sinks, because the trees absorb the carbon dioxide, and therefore, take it out of the atmosphere as they grow. So that's one way of doing it. But then there's a question when you harvest the trees, or what happens if you get a forest fire, etc. Um, buying uh, credits from another country, uh, businesses can do that as well as governments. Um, that's a second way. But Basically, every country, including New Zealand, we've got to reduce our domestic greenhouse gas emissions. Isn't the transport of carbon building. market
1: just a way out of actually reducing?
2: It, it, it is. It's... Um, uh, well, uh, forest sinks are only a, a temporary measure as well. When the whole of New Zealand is covered in Pinus radiata to offset the emissions from our trucks and uh, cars and whatever, what do we do then? So, so forest sinks are a temporary measure, and carbon markets are really um, uh, many organisations, NGOs, NGOs are in force in in um, uh, Glasgow as well at the COPs, uh, protesting and having holding serious meetings as well. But you know, they, there is a lot of opposition to this whole concept of of trading in carbon internationally without it being properly certified and every project approved, and that's a very difficult thing to do.
1: Paris was very good and important in some ways because they sent a stronger goal than past um, COP conferences. But the problem is that they didn't. They they didn't find a way of hold, holding any countries to account, did they?
2: No, that's right. The, every country put in its NDC, its nationally determined contribution, of what they thought that they could do to reduce emissions over the next decade or two. And it was a purely voluntary thing, and nobody's been held to account because that wasn't part of the Paris Agreement. And it was soon calculated that if all the NDCs, including New Zealand's, uh, which was 30% below 2005 levels by 2030, I think at the time, um, if all of the NDCs were added together, we'd still be on track for a temperature rise of about 2.7 to 2.8 degrees Celsius centigrade. And we are after the in the Paris Climate Agreement um, said, let's get below 2 degrees and try hard to get below 1.5 degrees, because even then the world's going to change. And so um, adding all the NDCs together didn't meet anywhere near the Paris target. And so therefore, all countries were asked to be more ambitious in their NDCs and come up with stronger ones, which many countries have now done. And if we add those together now, the latest assessment is there's about 1.9 degrees we might be aiming for. But it's only if every country meets its targets and does what it says it will do. And that's a huge, big if, because it's highly unlikely many countries will do so or be able to do so. And New Zealand's example. There was a a methane coalition that uh, President Biden and the European Union set up. New Zealand signed up for that because we had no choice. We'd have been a prior on the sidelines if we hadn't given that about nearly half of our greenhouse gas emissions are coming from methane, from agricultural methane, from the ruminant animals during their digestion. So we did sign up to that to reduce by 30% by 2030 our methane emissions. But we know there's no hope whatsoever of doing it. We're probably leading some of the science in the world to try and reduce the burps and the farts of the sheep and the cattle and the deer and whatever through the New Zealand Agricultural Greenhouse Gas Research Centre, which has got international collaboration. But they've been going for 10 years or more and multi-million dollars of research funding's gone in. And and the um, solutions are still reducing by maybe 5%, 10% over the next decade or two uh, with the current knowledge we have. And that's from better breeding of animals and feeding and possibly eventually vaccinations. So um, so that's just an example where we've said we will reduce methane by 30% in the next decade, but we it's so highly unlikely we can do that. And that's the same with many other countries. I mean, India said it's going to reduce its emissions by, I think, I can't remember, by 2070 or something like that. A huge challenge because, you know, India is still growing economically and China's the same too. So, um, it's, it's, um, yes, it's, it's a process we have to go through, but there's no holding any country to account.
1: Actually, New Zealand... Is using more carbon now than they were 30 years ago, as I understand it. And in the last, um, since Paris, we haven't really reduced carbon. In fact, methane's gone up considerably. Is that the case?
2: It, that's right. Our carbon dioxide, well, our gross emissions, our total emissions, were about 82.5 million tons in 2005. And they had been rising till then and then they sort of stabilized after that, gone up and down a little bit, but they're still hovering around eighty two point five million tons. So they haven't um changed over that period of time. Isn't and, that and that sorry, go on. Isn't
1: the carbon market idea responsible for that?
2: Well, partly, partly, but also we haven't had the policies in place to get people out of their cars and buy mm. bigger cars and um, you know, SUVs dominate the market, and new so people don't want if they live in the middle of a city, but don't need, I should say, but they want because of the status. Um, so, you know, and this is the problem really that to, worldwide we really don't have a buy in of the general public to reduce emissions, their own personal emissions.
1: You, um, you see the film Hot Air.
2: Uh, yes, uh, documentary, yeah, yeah. long and time ago. Pete
1: Hoskin yeah. talked it, in it, and he was the Minister of, of the Environment under the Helen Clark. In the first, I think the first three years, he tried hard to get a carbon tax,
2: mm.
1: not carbon market. That's right. And they were going to do it, and then the round table and the business community moved in and scared them.
2: Right, Would yeah. that
1: be the story in many parts of the world?
2: Well, it is. I mean, Pete Hodgson did a great job. as He was Minister of uh, Climate Change and Minister of Energy, I think, rather than Environment.
1: I mean, he wanted people uh, to pressure him, actually.
2: That's right. And he got to know, he's a massive University trained vet and he understands the science. And he um, had meetings with farmers, federated farmers, and said, you know, you guys are going to have to bear this uh, change and you should be supporting it. But they all said, we don't believe you, Pete, we don't believe you. There were protests on the steps of parliament or whatever. And that was the farming community. But industry, of course, has got, the fossil fuel industry in particular, has got a lot to lose um, because they uh, haven't got the access to selling cheap uh, oil, gas and coal in the future. So there have been pressures put on all governments from large-scale industry. The automobile industry in the States, for example, didn't want to go to electric cars. And, um, and that's another side issue as well, Marvin. Electric cars are only low carbon if the electricity that's charging them comes from in- renewable electricity. And
1: then you've got to think about the batteries and the, the cost of making a car for individuals. I live in a fairly lower middle class or working class area of Dunedin, which I won't name, but most of the houses have seem to have two or three cars in front of them. Not every house, but many of them. It's probably most.
2: Yeah, New Zealand's got the highest car ownership per yeah. person in the world, well, gonna- which is p- partly why um, we've also got one of the highest greenhouse gas emissions per person. Person per capita in the world as well. And people say, oh, New Zealand's only about 0.6% of the total of greenhouse gas emissions of the world. So why do we bother? But really, it should be thought of as a per person basis. So we're responsible for about 16 tonnes per person a year, including our agricultural emissions. And um, India is about one tonne per person per year. And China is about six or seven now. Um, Europe is about fourteen. Australia, the United States, and some Middle Eastern countries are, are higher than us. But, um, yeah, so it's uh, yeah, on a per capita basis. It's um, you know it's a responsibility to try and do our bit, really. Okay. And then you know electric cars are part of that. In New Zealand, it's great. I've got an electric car um, sitting outside, second-hand thing, and and it's charging as we speak in Sunny Palmerston North from my solar roof panel. So um, the electricity that's charging the car, I would have sold as it's excess to my demand at the moment, and so the few cents a kilowatt hour I would have got for that, I'm losing out on, and and it's, so therefore it cost me a dollar seventy to drive down about 150 kilometres to Wellington. So in terms of fuel, uh, I'm doing pretty well, but the cars are more expensive, as you rightly say. Um, but over the life of the car, it evens out. There's less maintenance, less repair, and um, uh, and the batteries are recyclable now. There's uh, mm. a whole number of companies setting it up. So I, you know, I think you're important.
1: right. But the government hasn't really like. I think in Norway they put a subsidy on electric cars, but That's right. the average person really can't afford to buy an electric car that has any range. I've got a um, a Toyota. Hybrid Aqua, which is 15 um, um, cc's, right. and it's very economical, but it still uses some carbon. But I couldn't <laughs> really afford to buy an electric car. I didn't have the capital. No, that's right, and you know that's most, the case. For- many people yep. and the economy, and probably. Um, would probably benefit if there was a subsidy on um, solar energy and on electric cars. I mean, it would cost more for the government in the short run, but it might cost them less in the long run.
2: Yeah, well, two two things there. There's um, the uh, cost of second-hand electric cars imported or, or second-hand sold or third-hand or fourth-hand now in New Zealand means that they, the price is trickling down, um, for uh, something like a Nissan Leaf, that has got a maybe 100 kilometres of range, one of the early ones. Uh, I think they're available for about $20,000 now, rather than you know, $40,000, $50,000, $60,000. Um, but also, of course, the government has got a policy. Uh, we called it the fee-bait scheme when I was chairing the Royal Society report on low carbon a transition to a low-carbon economy for New Zealand in 2016. And uh, we uh, discussed the fee-bait scheme there. And what that means is that if you buy a new or second-hand imported electric car now, you get 4000 or $3,000, depending on the size and scale, from the government to subsidise your purchase. And if you buy a thumping great ute or SUV that's high fuel consumption, then you're going to be charged 4000 $5,000 extra because of that nature of that vehicle. So that policy is in place, um, well, it's halfway through. You do get the subsidy for electric vehicles since a few weeks ago, and then the um, extra charge on the SUVs, et cetera, will be coming in, I think, beginning of next year. So, you know, government are aware uh, that we need to change the fleet, but we can't do it overnight and we have to do it equitably and make it to, so. I mean my view, is that everybody's got a right to mobility, but nobody's got a right to own a car. And so, you know, there are Uber taxis and car sharing, and whatever. But in many places, there's buses, and I use a bicycle most of the time. fact, my wife's gone out on a bicycle into town this morning. We're about six kilometres away, and that's our unusual form of transport. And it keeps you fit, and uh, keeps the air pollution down, and you can, don't have to park it, and All of those sort of things, too. There's a lot of co-benefits as well. So getting people out of their petrol and diesel cars is something that we have to do, but it'll only be done uh, steadily over the next few years, I think.
1: Okay, I'm going to play a song now, and then we'll come back.
2: Okay.
0: You become the vice president, XYZ Incorporated. That don't mean much to me. Oh, I know you work so hard to increase your social status. Even at the expense of the love of your family Oh yeah, but that's okay, I hear the corporation runners doing well And the shares that you bought in uranium and oil are beginning to swell And you're nearly there, man, you're nearly there, nearly at the top. And the role that you've modeled will ensure the cycle doesn't stop. And it's been going on for so long, it's infected all of us. it drips from our credit cards like a boil. oozing. Well, I think you know what is right if you continue to do wrong. If you could only find it yourself, you feel no need to sing this song. There's no need to sing this song. I was you when I was younger, and I too didn't understand. When my goal was for my wallet, not my mind to expand. Something happened along the way, and I learned to listen. We cannot sustain the way we live This was my lesson And we're borrowing from our grandkids It's they who will have to pay Cause the earth's going nowhere It's us who's going away I know I'm not perfect, but as hard as I can, I'm gonna try I think that we can change, it's not too late, we don't have to say goodbye But you're an addict and a junkie, and that's plain to see You're addicted to the money That is spewed from Corporation XYZ Well I think you know what is right but If you continue to do wrong If you could only find your true self you feel no need to sing this song There's no need to sing this song
1: That was Craig Smith from 45 Degrees South, who also came out with The Wonky Donkey, but this is a more serious album, and Corporation XYZ. We're talking with Professor Ralph Sims of Massey University, has been part of the um, intergovernmental panel on climate change for a number of years. And, we're, of course, we're talking about climate change and, Ralph, I feel a bit guilty this morning because I missed the bus by about two minutes. <laughs> and so I ended yeah. up, guess what?
2: <laughs> yeah. Now, well, that's the way the world is. In fact, you know, bus companies are starting in some places. I'm not sure about Dunedin. But um, to send you a, a message uh, on your phone to say that the bus will be arriving at your bus stop in two minutes and 23 seconds' time... and and so, you know, you anticipate it and you're told and you're in communication so you don't have to stand there in the rain for 10 minutes and um, wait waiting for a bus. Yeah. So, you know, make, making it easier for people to use public yeah. transport. Well, I think
1: <laughs> buses are one of the most... Buses and trains are one of the most important things and I think we should have been well ahead of our improving the system because people will... Use buses if if they're in, if they're cheap and if they're very efficient. In Wellington, until recently, we had a very Wellington, had a very good bus service. Though I'm not sure that they're satisfied with private contractors because it's had its up and downs in Wellington.
2: No, and that's the right. And it's the Wellington Regional Council. Yeah, it's, it's um, but yeah, there's always ways of improving. I've just uh, put a an analysis together uh, leaving my home and not just going around the city but leaving my home and getting down to the Wellington Central Business District and I live on the outskirts of Palmerston North, so it's about 150 kilometres. And I called it um, Cost, Carbon, Comfort and Convenience. I compared a diesel car, I used to have a little Peugeot diesel for 10 years before I got this electric car. So I compared those two cars and the parking and the time and then I went into town to catch the bus, and then I went into the railway station to catch the train, but there's only one a day. And then I flew, and I compared those different modes of, of getting down to Wellington. And um, from a cost point of view, a car is actually one of the most expensive, And uh, if you take into account the whole price of tyres and repairs and maintenance and whatever. So it cost me about $150 to get down to Wellington and back in a, in a diesel car. And the bus took a bit longer, but I had to get to the um, uh, bus terminal. Uh, and the train was the most convenient because you can almost, sorry, most comfortable because you can plug in your laptop and do some work or read a newspaper, or have a sleep or have a beer on the way home uh, on the capital connection. And um, but it uh, again, there was a problem getting to the railway station. That was an interesting comparison.
1: I'm a big fan of transport by trains, and I certainly wish we had a a better uh, train system in New Zealand, both in the cities like Wellington and Auckland, but also between cities. Uh, the idea of having to having to fly if you're going to Wellington from the south from Dunedin is it's un you know it's really backward. I think.
2: No, that's right. When I I lived in Paris, I said before, I would go four or five hours on a train rather than go to an airport and hang around and catch a plane to the same destination. So the train was far more... But then, you know, the Europe is full of trains, so it was pretty convenient.
1: What are the tipping points in the ecological system for climate change?
2: Well, um... And There's several us, of them. Tell us um, but what, we tip,
1: what, what are tipping points.
2: A tipping point is when um, something suddenly gets a lot worse. So take the uh, permafrost in uh, the um, Arctic Circle up north across Russia and Canada and whatever. So you're going up towards the North Pole. And as and this is land that is permanently frozen. So it's called permafrost. And it's been like that for thousands of years but because of climate change in some places it's starting to thaw in that 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 particular land and there's photographs i've seen of buildings that have sort of collapsed because once it thaws it loses its strength it's held together by the ice and as well as that methane is locked up in the permafrost the gas methane which is the uh, second most um, the highest volume of greenhouse gases, and one of the more um, serious ones. Um, So slowly this methane is getting released, but if it becomes a tipping point where the temperature rises just one degree or half a degree more in that particular area, then suddenly loads of methane will be released. And um, that will exacerbate the whole climate change problem, because obviously, the atmosphere has got a lot more methane in it than it would have had otherwise, and uh, methane a greenhouse gas. If, so that's a tipping point. If we don't, um, continue,
1: yeah, and that's happening both in methane, and it's also happening with, to some extent with glaciers in places mm. like um, Greenland, and maybe there's a danger of it in, in Antarctica. That,
2: that's right, and and its ice melt is um, happening close of. Further on, um, faster on, on some areas than what was thought. If the ice is on uh, sitting on land, as in Greenland, which is covered in ice, then that ice ends up in the sea as it melts as water, and that's what's partly causing sea level rise. Sea level rise is also in, in, increasing because of the warmer temperature of the ocean. And when anything is warm, it expands. So there's two reasons for sea level rise, basically. And certainly the ice melt is another one. The ice melt is occurring faster in some areas than what's, what was projected. But, of course, the world is a complex place. Uh, the, the Gaia hypothesis uh, um, many years ago just shows how complex it is. So there are... A few glaciers that are increasing, but the vast majority of glaciers around the world are receding as the temperature warms. And there are places in the Antarctic where the ice is building up, but in most places it's starting to melt faster. And, and certainly in um, the Arctic Ocean, you can now sail a boat right the way through in the summertime, which was never possible before. So that's happened in the last... What's the worst-case
1: scenario for mammals and human beings if 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 these tipping points are all set off and we don't control climate change at all?
2: Well, we um, within the IPCC, we put together um, what we called a burning embers diagram, and there were different columns... Uh, about um, ocean temperatures and glacier melts and um, uh, coral reefs and extreme weather events. And as the on, on the right-hand side of these columns was the temperature uh, rise. And as the temperature rises, then these columns become deeper and deeper red because there's extreme risk as opposed to high risk as opposed to low risk the warmer the temperature, then the greater the impacts it's going to be. And so at the moment, we're about 1.1 degrees centigrade above the 14.0 degree standard that we've had for 10,000 years. We've had a stable climate for 10,000 years. Climate's always changed over hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, The 10,000 years at 14.0 degrees, northern southern hemisphere, day and night, winter and summer has uh, given us stability, civilization agriculture and we're changing that now. So as we move up from 1.1 1. 1 degree temperature rise that we've already got, up to 1.5, up to 2, up to 3, up to 4, then the impacts on biodiversity, on coral reefs, on, on ocean acidity, etc, etc, are all going to get worse and it's going to be the planet won't become uninhabitable but there'll be huge number of deaths from extreme heats, etc. But before that occurs, there'll be huge numbers of migrants, refugees, environmental refugees. That's already happening with uh, North African folk getting across the Mediterranean, moving into Europe, taking risks of folk moving from Costa Rica up in through Mexico into the United States. Uh, they've got no hope. And their food supply is diminishing and their water supplies are running out. And so, whole families, desperate families, are starting to move. And that's going to become far more evident the faster the planet warms. And it'll, it'll um, happen in New Zealand too. We've got the South Pacific Islands that are already desperate, and some Tuvalu and others uh, are losing their drinking water and their food supply. And they're having to migrate, uh, where are they all going to go to? And so, Australia and New Zealand probably the obvious places. Do And we, they, might not, yeah. they might not get legal immigration visas, but they'll turn up in boatloads, as they've been doing in Australia. Don't we
1: have to actually change the economic formulas from growth to moving toward more equality and if not degrowth, stopping growth in the so-called developed countries and making sure that growth in the developing world is less carbon-intensive. I've been reading an abs- uh, something from the Journal of World Systems Research which says that uh, renewable energy in wealthy com- countries has not tended to cut back on carbon because the, uh, the economic growth... Has outrun the uh, renewable, the uh, renewable electricity energy sources.
2: Yeah. No. Well, that's that's why there's been a lot of people have been saying. For I'm not an economist, but there's a lot of people have been saying for a long time that we cannot keep growing as we are, and putting a monitor on GDP growth is an indicator of a successful country is starting to be turned around. Um, uh, Myanmar was it? Myanmar um, started. to uh, Bhutan. Bhutan started to measure their country in terms of increased happiness uh, rather than GDP. And we've talked about well-being and happiness in New Zealand as a, a growth indicator because we don't need more stuff and more consumption and more money to be happy. Is the argument? We happened? do need to have. Nature around us and biodiversity, and uh, and, and that's what um, makes people happy. Haven't uh, New
1: Zealand time. got a particular problem, because in the eighteen eighties, nineteen, I mean nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, we instead of diversifying our economy, we went to the old way of of putting all our eggs in one or two baskets. Uh, in this case, it was instead of um, lamb or wool, it was um, dairy milk products, um, basically milk powder to countries that don't even normally, didn't used to drink milk. It's not particularly good for them in Asia and China. And the other problem is the other industries we might have had we um, sold off or lost and so we basically put made it more difficult I mean we should really be getting cows probably have a higher degree of uh, yeah. methane than any other animal or one of the higher and we, yet we keep extending the the number of cows, this not only affects, of course, our water quality, but even it also affects nothing.
2: Yeah, well, I, I would, would agree with the sentiments there, Marvin. I used to milk cows when I was a lad in Yorkshire in the UK. And um, so, uh, um, you know, I, I'm very familiar with the dairy industry. It's been very successful in New Zealand in terms of producing milk products. And it's quite true. When a milk product is exported to, say, UK or Denmark or wherever, butter or cheese or whatever, um, the carbon footprint of that product is lower than if the product was made with cows in those countries. Because those cows are kept indoors for six months a year and they're fed on all sorts of concentrates. And they still produce methane in the same way, but the transport of the product is a relatively low amount of the total but most carbon. of
1: our milk goes to China now.
2: Well, that's right. That's, that's the issue there. And so with the, with the milk formulas and um, milk powders and such like. When that comes back to um, the Climate Change Commission has suggested we reduce cow numbers, but we maintain productivity by um, better feeding and uh, improved grazing. And many top leading farmers are doing that, Are showing it's possible to make just as much profit, if you like, and produce the same amount of milk fat, um, but having less cows to do it. So which helps, because that means less methane. But it basically comes down to two things, Well, well, uh, as we mentioned earlier as well. Population growth is a big problem that we have in the world, of course, which is driving all of this. We're now up to um, 7 billion people, I think, and projected to reach 9 billion by 2050. And of course, those people all need food and water, and uh, it might stabilize off after that. But um, uh, at the moment, we can't suddenly turn the population tap off in Africa uh, because there's no social security. They have lots of children hoping one or two might survive to look after them in their old age and and, um, uh, and therefore large families won't, won't stop there. But as well as reducing the population or slowing down the population growth. We've also got to get away from meat-eating animal protein to uh, vegetable protein to a larger degree. And this is mainly developed countries, but also developing as well. And so the energy, water and climate emissions from a kilogram of animal protein, from ruminants in particular, could be, say, 15 Won't use a unit but just as a comparative number um, uh, because it gets quite complex so say 15 for ruminant animals milk and meat products and it might be about six for pork and chicken and fish although fish stocks of course are also uh, under threat as well in some places so 15 for meat animals down to six for uh, white meat pork and chicken fish eggs and down to about one or vegetarian for vegetable protein, and so you can you don't uh, live have to be a vegetarian. But reducing our animal protein consumption has to be done worldwide if we're going to battle climate change. Some work I did for the United Nations Food Agricultural Organization a decade ago. We were the first. but um, we were the first to. Um, figure out that 24% of total greenhouse gas emissions comes from the food supply chain in the world and about 32% of end-use energy is consumed. And that's for growing and farming and transport and processing and retail, etc. right the way through the system. So, therefore, in order to reduce our emissions, we've got to get a, a better system of growing uh, food and then of course we fail to consume one third of the food we produce. In developing countries it's because it gets lost in storage or the rats get in or lost after harvest because they haven't got very good storage systems. In our world, in New Zealand and and US wherever, supermarkets tend to uh, sell you three for the price of two but you actually only want one so you have to buy three and then two might get thrown away. Or um, and there's a confusion between the used by date and the best before date, and people are throwing things away when they're quite edible and um, and and not. Um, my mother after World War Two used to make wonderful bread and butter pudding. When we were all on rations, we never threw anything away. We just used to reuse it and, and re um, um, turn it into a new recipe. So food is a critical part of New Zealand's economy but we're not particularly good at producing it as well as we could do and we do have to look at alternative ways of producing and bearing in mind too Marvin that there's synthetic meat and synthetic milk products commercially available around the world now produced in various ways and you can't really tell the difference between a Uh, a a beef burger in a hamburger or or um, an impossible non-meat burger. They taste exactly the same. And uh, One's produced with a lot of water and a lot of energy and a lot of time and a lot of land and a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. And the other one's produced in a factory in the middle of the town somewhere.
1: So the world needs to make some drastic changes, don't we? We Maybe we should act as though we did during World War II and really take action.
2: But, well, that, that's right. I mean, if we're going to combat this, we need to do that. But, of course, not many people will want to okay. go into a recession and change their lifestyles, change okay. their behaviour. Okay. So, politically, it's very, very difficult okay. to do uh, in a world war or in a war, wartime situation um, there's obviously a lot of resistance yeah. to war as well, but you do get some public yeah. buy-in um, depending Thanks on
1: circumstances. Thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate your coming. And yeah. it's been a good talk.
2: Yeah, OK. No. Uh, another time, happy to have another chat too, Marvin. Righto.
0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.